When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The contempt for the judgment of the people, entertained by the federal leaders of the Hamiltonian school, has been seldom so strongly manifested as in the nominations for electors, without informing the voters whom the electors were to choose for president and vice-president. In New England, a caucus is held, an electoral ticket is formed, and the citizens are called upon to vote for it, such is the case in New Jersey. But in no instance have the people been told whether Jefferson or Pinckney Clinton or Ellsworth were to be supported. Whilst the knowledge of the intention of the Republicans to vote for Jefferson and Clinton enables the Federalists to slander and abase them, an opportunity is not afforded to the Republicans to examine the pretensions of those who are to be the Federal candidates, the names cunningly and cowardly concealed. This concealment, however, marks the weakness of the Federalists as a party, and the little weight which the names of any of their leaders has with the people. Philadelphia, Aurora, November 6th, 1804. As we've seen in the elections that we've covered thus far, the elements of presidential elections and national campaigns that we take for granted as fundamentals in the present day, 2020 as of this recording, were still either in their infancy or not yet conceived in the campaigns of the early republic. As our opening quote suggests, it seems like there was still much doubt even in early November 1804 as to who the candidates were that the electors from some of the states in the Northeast would actually be voting for to carry out the next presidential term. We'll return to the ins and outs of the election of 1804 in a bit, but I'd like to take this opportunity to welcome you to the presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Thashira Pather of the Legendary Africa podcast for providing the intro quote for this episode. Legendary Africa examines the folklore from various cultures across the continent of Africa and the insights that these myths and legends provide us in understanding the peoples that recount these tales even in the present day. Once you get done with this episode, be sure to give Legendary Africa a try. Believe me, you won't regret it. You can find Legendary Africa at Linktree, that's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E, slash Legendary Podcast, all one word. As we've already seen in recent episodes, the year 1804 was a time of change for many folks, including one that you may not remember unless you have a really good memory. Back in episode 2.17, we were introduced to an Adams appointee to the Supreme Court, Alfred Moore of North Carolina. As I explained in that episode, Moore is not one of the better-known Supreme Court justices. Indeed, we can't even talk about Moore in the context of the most famous Supreme Court case of the early Republic, Marbury v. Madison, as Moore did not rule in that case. As he was assigned to the long and strenuous Southern Circuit, he was delayed in his return to Washington, D.C., and thus only arrived to hear the last witness in that case. As described by historian, not future president, James Buchanan, quote, the remainder of his career became a story of missed opportunities. Part of the reason why Moore is not better known or considered influential during his time on the court is that apparently he suffered from ill health for part of his tenure. 
circuit riding did not help matters. And thus, on January 26, 1804, Moore resigned from the court, having served just shy of four years. As we bid farewell to Justice Moore, I feel that we should note that he returned home to North Carolina and devoted the remainder of his life to helping to build up the University of North Carolina. Though I'm not a UNC grad, I have to admit that, as a North Carolinian, I share with my fellow citizens a sense of pride about our flagship state university, as well as all of the many institutes of higher education in our state that contribute so much to our communities and to the world. So I could not let Moore's work in his later years go unremarked upon. Alfred Moore died on October 15, 1810, at the age of 55, and though he was noted as being, quote, among the leaders of the North Carolina bar of his generation, I've probably talked about him much more than you'll ever hear anyone else discuss him in the context of presidential history or indeed in Supreme Court history. With Moore's retirement, after three years of waiting, President Jefferson finally had an opportunity to appoint a new justice to the Supreme Court. To maintain the geographic balance on the court, Jefferson looked to the South for candidates. Whether there was a political element to it, with his Federalist opponent in the upcoming presidential election being from the same state, I haven't been able to find any evidence one way or the other, but it does seem that Jefferson did soon narrow his focus to potential candidates from South Carolina, as he wrote some notes about possible contenders on February 17, all of whom were from the Palmetto State. Naturally, all five were Democratic-Republicans, but he did make note of one of the candidates, John Julius Pringle, that he was, quote, wavering once in his allegiance to the party. With Burr still in mind, and adding in the fact that Jefferson felt that it was unlikely that Pringle would, quote, accept a commission which should call him from his home in Charleston, that was one candidate marked off the list. Thomas Watties he dismissed as, quote, so sickly that he would not be able to ride. And likewise, he felt that Louis Trevisant was, quote, of such total feebleness of body as to be quite unfit. The list was then narrowed to two, William Johnson and Theodore Galliard. As the president compared both Trevisan and Galliard's qualifications for the office to Johnson, it's not hard to tell who the top candidate was in Jefferson's mind. Thus, on March 22nd, Jefferson sent in Johnson's nomination to the Senate, and two days later, the nomination was duly confirmed. So who was this new Supreme Court justice, you ask? William Johnson was born near Charleston a few years prior to the start of the American Revolution in December 1771. Though Johnson himself was far too young to be involved in the conflict, his father was quite active in the independence movement and was captured by the British during the invasion of Charleston. Like a good number of Southern young men from the planter class, including James Madison, Johnson attended the College of New Jersey, which we now know of as Princeton, from which he graduated first in his class in 1790. Upon his return to Charleston, he actually read law under our old friend Charles Coatsworth Pinckney and was admitted to the bar in 1793. Now, given that we've covered at some length Pinckney's involvement with the Federalist Party and the fact that he was the party's chosen candidate in 1804, it may seem odd that Johnson retained a favorable opinion of Pinckney over the years, even after he settled in the Democratic-Republican camp. But it also reflects the fact that party lines were not nearly as rigid as we think of them in the modern era and hopefully can serve as an example in our time for friendships transcending party affiliations. But I digress. Like his father, Johnson, at age 22, got involved in politics with his election to the South Carolina House of Representatives and ultimately worked his way up until, in 1798, while still in his late 20s, 
Johnson became Speaker of the South Carolina House. As a lawyer by training, during his tenure in the State House, Johnson got involved in judicial reform efforts and in 1799 was rewarded for his service to the state and the party with an appointment to the South Carolina Court of Common Pleas, a position he would remain at until Jefferson's nomination of him to the Supreme Court. Given that Johnson was 32 when appointed Associate Justice, it could reasonably be expected that someone so young would remain on the court for a good while, thus allowing Jefferson to start moving the political leaning of the court away from the Federalist side of the spectrum. While we'll have to wait to see what Johnson's ultimate legacy on the court would be, I don't think it'll come as much surprise if I say that one summary of his life that was a source for this episode began by describing him as, quote, the first great dissenter on the Supreme Court. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Before we return to our discussion of the election, we should probably catch up with two folks who were serving the Jefferson administration out in the West. No, I'm not talking about Lewis and Clark. As the United States took formal possession of Louisiana, as discussed in episode 3.19, there were two key representatives of the federal government on the ground, William C.C. Claiborne and General James Wilkinson. With the formal transfer, there were numerous balls thrown by Spanish and French officials, and it was likewise expected that the American officials would reciprocate. Governor Claiborne, however, had little in the way of authorized funds to throw such lavish affairs as those hosted by the soon-departing international representatives. A little thing like a lack of money in the budget didn't stop General Wilkinson, though, who would spend, or I should say, charge back to the federal government, just over $6,600 in 1803 currency, or over $200,000 in 2015 currency, according to our friends at the Historical Currency Converter, on refreshments at celebrations including, quote, 162 pounds of coffee, 196 gallons and one quarter cask of Majira, four gallons of sherry, 144 bottles of champagne, 60 bottles of white wine, 100 bottles of hermitage wine, 588 bottles of red wine, 6 bottles of cordials, 67 gallons of brandy, 81 bottles of porter, 1 case of gin, 258 bottles of ale, 3 barrels of cider, 5 gallons of rum, 2 gallons of whiskey, and 11,360 Spanish cigars. One can only hope that these weren't all consumed in one night or else there were many folks who didn't remember that night the day after. But again, I digress. You can imagine how these expenses would go down when they were learned about in Washington, but that was a matter for the future. For now, in addition to the partying, Governor Claiborne had to get down to the business of actually governing this new territory. As we've discussed previously, episode 3.20 specifically, though Claiborne had been given wide authority in initially taking control of the government of Louisiana, He also realized the precarious nature of his position, as he was governing by fiat rather than in an established governmental system. Shortly after the transfer, there had been, quote, rumors of a plot to burn the city and of a slave revolt, which ultimately came to naught, but naturally had to be taken into consideration for these new custodians of civic authority. Given that three-fourths of the population and seven-eighths of the wealth of Louisiana was concentrated in the lands in and around New Orleans, Claiborne and Wilkinson had to carefully consider that city's defenses. At the time, though, 
As described by historian Joseph Hatfield, quote, Encircling the Crescent City and affording it a false sense of security were five forts, built during the four decades of Spanish occupation, but in a state of abject disrepair in 1803. Given the meager military force available in the area, the new governor would have to project a presence of authority. Unfortunately for Claiborne, that was easier said than done. Again from Hatfield, quote, The cultural heritage, economic life, and political institutions of Louisiana differed markedly from those in any other territory under American control. Although the American influence rapidly increased after 1803, the Americans at the time of the transfer were a decided, if somewhat vocal, minority. Governor Claiborne's most formidable task was the introduction of American institutions and the Americanization of the inhabitants, which he was expected to accomplish without producing any serious disruptions. Moreover, the governor's inability to communicate with the inhabitants in any language other than English compounded his problem. At the point he assumed his new post, Governor Claiborne wasn't even sure whether it would be a permanent position or if he would be returning back to either his post in the Mississippi Territory or possibly even back home to Tennessee. Indeed, there were numerous contenders for the more permanent post, and according to Hatfield, at times, Jefferson seemed inclined to other candidates, including Thomas Sumner Jr., who had at one time worked with Jefferson's associate, James Monroe. Sumner quickly fell out of favor in Jefferson's estimations, but there was another name that was a much more attractive prospect to the president. Jefferson wrote to the Marquis de Lafayette to offer him the post, and worked with Congress to entice him with the prospect of a land grant in Louisiana. Unfortunately, Lafayette wrote back declining the offer, as he was more interested in affairs in France. In the meantime, Vice President Aaron Burr's friends apparently tried to push his name forward for consideration, and newspapers in New Orleans even preemptively reported that he had accepted the post before quickly retracting the story when they realized he hadn't even been offered the position. I think we've already sufficiently covered why Jefferson would never think of Burr for such an important posting, so we'll move forward without further comment on that one. A local contact on the ground in New Orleans who had been a key source of information to the administration named Daniel Clark felt himself deserving of the post, but this was not someone that Jefferson knew personally or felt he could trust. Thus, it's not at all surprising that, in early 1804, Jefferson should consider the person who had quickly become his go-to for all matters abroad, James Monroe. Jefferson wrote to Monroe on January 8, 1804, asserting that Congress was prepared to offer $5,000 a year to the governor of the new territory. While this was lower than Monroe's current salary as U.S. Minister to Britain, he knew that Monroe was suffering financially due to the fact that, quote, in that station, i.e. London, you cannot avoid expensive hospitality. New Orleans would not be nearly that expensive to live in, and there was much there to entice a Virginia planner. As Jefferson explained to his friend, quote, the only considerations which might make it, i.e. taking the post as governor, eligible to you were the facility of getting there the richest land in the world, the extraordinary profitableness of their culture, and that the removal of your slaves there might immediately put you underway. It was the dream come true of profitable plantation land in the West, of which Jefferson, Monroe, and many other Virginia planters had dreamed over the years. Ultimately, Monroe would decline the offer, but one other name came up in Jefferson's letter to Monroe that we must briefly mention. Fulwar Skipwith was the distant cousin of President Jefferson and had been named to various diplomatic posts during the Washington administration. Skipwith had started his career as a Virginia merchant with commercial ties in Europe, and in June 1790, he received his first appointment as the U.S. Consul in Martinique. 
There, he was able to witness firsthand the slave insurrections and the turbulent state of French colonies in the Caribbean. During a standoff between two factions on Martinique in 1793, Skipwith decided to head back to the U.S. The next year, he secured a post as James Monroe's secretary during his tenure as U.S. Minister to France in Washington's administration. During that time in France, Monroe had leaned on Skipwith as a trusted ally, even appointing him to an acting role as Consul General until Washington's anticipated permanent appointment arrived to take up the post. The role ended up becoming a permanent one, and Skipwith was on hand to greet Monroe upon his return to France in 1803. Despite, or perhaps because of, Skipwith's extensive service record, Jefferson wrote in his letter to Monroe of January 8th that, quote, Fulwar Skipwith wishes office in Louisiana, but he should be made sensible to the impossibility of an office remaining vacant till we can import an incumbent from Europe. That of governor is the only one for which the law has made that sort of provision. Besides, he has been so long absent from America that he cannot have habits and feelings and the tact necessary to be in unison with his countrymen here. He is much fitter for any matters of business below that of diplomacy, which we may have to do in Europe. We'll just have to wait to see whether it's in Europe or North America that Skipwith re-enters our story. But a quick side note as to one other person who is interested in the governorship, as it may be a name with which you are familiar. At this point in his career, Andrew Jackson had already served in the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. Granted, they were brief tenures, but he had already spent some time in the seat of federal power. Following his resignation from the Senate, Jackson had been chosen for a seat on the Tennessee Superior Court and used his time in this service to build up his political power at the state level. With the Louisiana Purchase, Jackson began to turn his mind to the governorship of the new territory and enlisted the aid of his friends and supporters to secure the position. Despite the recommendations offered by others, as noted by Jackson biographer Robert Remini, quote, Jefferson probably gave Jackson little consideration, knowing what he did of the Tennessean and his performance in the Senate. Hatfield notes that, quote, Jackson's record in both houses of Congress had been mediocre, and he had yet to emerge as a prominent national figure. Thus, there was no reason for Jefferson to see Jackson as someone that he could trust for such an important position. However, Jefferson's rejection, quote, staggered Jackson. In that single act, relations between Jefferson and Jackson collapsed. It galled Jackson to be refused. It humiliated him to be passed over. Naturally, we'll be coming back to Jackson later. But for now, let's turn our attention for a moment to Jefferson's ultimate choice for the position, the interim governor, William C.C. Claiborne. Claiborne had not been passive when it came to obtaining the governorship. Along with good words pouring in from Claiborne's friends and formal addresses from the Mississippi Territory attesting to his dignified leadership, Claiborne himself wrote to Jefferson on February 25th, though he admitted to, quote, the incessant toil and anxiety of mind which I have experienced since my residence in this city, united with the heavy expenses attending housekeeping. I must confess, sir, that the confidence of the present administration is to me an inestimable treasure. He modestly claimed that, quote, I fear, however, I was wrong in introducing the subject, and I must offer you an apology. My feelings led me imperceptibly on, and the topic being introduced, I could not sooner restrain my pen. Yeah, you doth protest too much, Claiborne. But whether it was Claiborne's words or the testimonies coming in from his supporters that did the trick, Jefferson did ultimately name him to the permanent post of Governor of the Territory of Orleans. Despite that, Hatfield does note that, quote, 
Both Jefferson and Madison continued to canvass the field and kept their options open. They never reconciled themselves completely to the Claiborne appointment. Given how loyal and effective Claiborne had proven thus far in this series, this may come as a surprise to you, dear listener, but I think when we factor in that he was not their first or second choice, as well as the fact that he didn't speak French, that might explain their hesitance at keeping him in the position beyond just the initial period of taking charge. Still, from Hatfield, quote, Claiborne was steady and reliable, if not a charismatic leader of instantly recognizable and overwhelming administrative capabilities. We'll leave Governor Claiborne there for now and turn to his colleague, General Wilkinson. The military was seen as being key to ensuring the Americanization of the Orleans Territory, especially as there were still Spanish and French troops in New Orleans for a few months after the transfer. As historian Theodore Crackle described it, quote, The strategic importance and the peculiar vulnerability of New Orleans were quite clear to the administration, and they moved with decisiveness to consolidate the new position. As the senior officer of the U.S. Army, Wilkinson couldn't be expected to stay in New Orleans forever, so Lieutenant Colonel Constance Freeman was ordered to the area to take command of forces in the region. Wilkinson, meanwhile, was making plans of his own and taking advantage of the opportunity being in New Orleans provided him. We saw back in episode 2.9 that Wilkinson had given up his role as a double agent for the Spanish government and wholeheartedly served the United States during Adams' term. But as we saw in episode 3.19, Wilkinson was increasingly growing frustrated that, despite his attempts to ingratiate himself to the Jefferson administration, it didn't seem like his career was going anywhere. Thus, he began to think of whether he should pursue other opportunities with his former secret employer. As Wilkinson biographer Andrew Linkletter notes, quote, one immediate motive in approaching the Spanish again was, as always, financial. His salary as general was now $225 a month, and on top of that, he received generous expenses and a special allowance of $8 a day while negotiating Indian treaties. Wilkinson estimated that altogether he received something close to $4,000 a year from the Army. But tighter regulations and constant travel clearly reduced the scope of payoffs from contractors and he had one son at Princeton and a wife whose nervousness grew more pronounced the longer he was away from home, and whose demands he could not deny. Thus, in February 1804, Wilkinson arranged a meeting with the Spanish governor of West Florida, Vicente Fulch, who happened to be in New Orleans at the time. In their meeting, Wilkinson offered his thoughts on how the Spanish should approach their ambitions in the Western Hemisphere following the Louisiana Purchase, then threw in a mention of his quote-unquote considerable embarrassment that his salary as a Spanish agent had not been paid to him for 10 years. He thought that Folch could rectify the situation, though, by giving him the 20000 he was owed before he left New Orleans to return to Washington to meet with Jefferson. And in turn, Wilkinson would provide the Spanish with, quote, the administration's plans for Louisiana and the president's innermost thoughts. Linkletter notes, quote, that Folch should have taken seriously the request for such a gigantic sum says much for the value of the general's past services. Despite that, Fulch simply didn't have that kind of money lying around. Thus, Wilkinson generously said that he would gladly accept $10,000, please and thank you. Again, though, this was more than Fulch could supply. Thus, Wilkinson turned to another Spanish official who happened to be in New Orleans, Casa Calvo, and in meeting with him was able to secure a promise for an immediate payment of $12,000. In exchange, Wilkinson wrote his third strategy paper for the Spanish government. This paper, titled Reflections, quote, delineated the consequences of the Louisiana Purchase, 
that the irresistible drive of settlement would now sweep westward across the Mississippi, unless Spain could stop it. Wilkinson proposed that Spain should offer the U.S. the Floridas in exchange for Louisiana and lock down the deal by offering to pay the U.S. back the $15 million paid for Louisiana, along with, quote, any other expenses the United States might have incurred. Wilkinson argued that this was a smaller price to pay than Spain losing its lucrative colony of Mexico to the U.S. The general warned that, in the meantime, Spain should instruct the governors of Tejas and the Floridas to, quote, fortify their frontiers to prevent American incursions, as not only would Americans overrun those areas, but they would also share strategic information which would get back to the American government, much as intelligence had been gathered when the Jefferson administration considered the possibility of taking New Orleans by force. Likewise, Wilkinson shared with the Spanish government top-secret information about the Lewis and Clark expedition and recommended that the Spanish, quote, detach a sufficient body of chasseurs to intercept Captain Lewis and his party and force them to retire or take them prisoners. Like Jefferson, Wilkinson realized the important information that would be gathered from the Lewis and Clark expedition and knew that it would help to further American westward ambitions. With that said, let's pause here for a moment and consider this a bit further. Here you have the senior officer of the United States Army recommending that a foreign government take prisoner commission United States Army officers. If this doesn't convey the level of Wilkinson's betrayal and, dare we say it, treason, then I don't know what does. Wilkinson's suggestions were acted upon, including the proposal to send troops to either turn back or capture the Lewis and Clark expedition. Casacalvo instructed the acting governor of Tejas, Antonio Cordero y Bustamante, to send out a force, and he in turn ordered Captain Pedro Villal to send out an armed patrol. Again, from Linkletter, quote, at least three attempts by an armed patrol of 200 men were made to kill or capture Lewis and Clark's party. I will go ahead and give you a spoiler by saying that they were ultimately unsuccessful, but can you imagine the consequences if this expedition had been thwarted by the Spanish? Wilkinson was relieved of his duties as military commissioner of New Orleans on March 4, 1804, and he quickly made plans to travel to Washington. There was one problem, though. He had to transport all the money that the Spanish had given him. Thus, he utilized a method that had succeeded for him in the past. Wilkinson bought a whole lot of sugar, so much so that people in New Orleans started to talk about why General Wilkinson needed so much sugar. American officials began to suspect some underhanded dealings, but were unable to find any evidence. Meanwhile, Wilkinson emptied out at least part of the sugar and put the currency in there to transport back as cargo on the same ship that he was on to Washington. He also worked on an American version of his Reflections Report, in which he provided intelligence on Spanish settlements and fortifications between the Mississippi River and the Rio Grande, and suggestions on next steps for the U.S. in the West. Agent 13 was an active double agent once more, and, as someone in the room with the president, was well-positioned to be a valuable agent to the government in Madrid. As was the case in the West, so too across the Atlantic and Europe were changes happening in terms of government postings. Since the Louisiana Purchase, U.S. Minister to France Robert Livingston had been an unhappy man. One of the provisions of the Louisiana Purchase Treaty was a commission established to evaluate American claims on France. Two of the commissioners named, however, were destined to end up clashing with Livingston before they even arrived in Paris. William McClure and James Mercer were from Virginia and were close associates with Monroe. As discussed in episode 3.19, 
Monroe and Livingston had already butted heads, and their relationship was growing ever cooler. Livingston was very concerned about who would get credit for diplomatic triumphs, and thus had worked to get the Louisiana Purchase done before Monroe's arrival, then after worked to promote his own cause in claiming more credit for the triumph than his associate Monroe. Meanwhile, Livingston had worked to get the negotiations with the Spanish over the Floridas moved to Paris so that he could be involved. Knowledge of his efforts to keep Monroe from getting credit had reached Democratic-Republican circles in the U.S., and Mercer had apparently already commented on Livingston's attempts to claim credit for the purchase of Louisiana. Thus, when they and the third commissioner, Isaac Cox Barnett of New Jersey, arrived and began their work in the beginning of October 1803, Livingston soon fell out with them claiming that they were holding up the process by quibbling over the details of the records regarding the claims. He wrote to Monroe on October 8th, blaming McClure as being the main cause of the holdup, and, quote, intimating that Monroe had influenced McClure. As Livingston kept on with his critique throughout the month, the commissioner's patience finally broke, and they wrote to Livingston on October 29th, explaining that he was, quote, unconnected with the board, and that they were answerable, quote, only to the administration of the United States. Likewise, Monroe wrote on that same day to Livingston, quote, that the commissioners are responsible for their own conduct, not we. A contrary construction would degrade them into nothing. The battle between the commissioners and the U.S. minister kept up for months, with the commissioners accusing Livingston in late March 1804 of going behind their backs to give assurances to those whose claims were rejected that he would work with the French Treasury to get them restitution. Livingston got no support from the government back in Washington on the matter either, and as the French government in the spring of 1804 got concerned over the slowness of the commission's work, Livingston decided to take a vacation to England. However, even this landed Livingston in controversy as rumors started flying that Livingston was there as an emissary from Napoleon's government to discuss peace between Britain and France. Considering that his arrival was around the time of William Pitt's assuming the ministership from Henry Addington, there was already much speculation in the air. While Livingston delighted in the attention, claiming that, quote, my arrival made as much noise and speculation as if I'd been the cham of Tartary or Prester John. As with his feud with Monroe and with the commission, Livingston was proving to be a continued embarrassment to the administration. Luckily, Jefferson and Secretary of State Madison had an out to the situation. As early as March 1803, Livingston had written to Jefferson that, quote, I had in no event determined to remain here longer than chill the next spring, and consistently in letters written to Jefferson and Madison the next few months, expressed his wish to retire from his post. However, the last mention of it was in a letter on June 11th. Thus, Madison brought it back up in a letter on February 7th, 1804, asserting that, quote, having been in constant expectation of hearing whether you persisted or not, in the intention last expressed of returning home next spring, I have thus far delayed sending you a letter of leave, which, if not to be used, I considered as most proper not to forward. He also reminded Livingston that he had already sent a letter giving him permission to leave his post when they were still trying to decide whether he or Monroe would go to London to negotiate with the British after Rufus King left his post, as discussed in episode 3.19. The message was pretty clear. You're free to leave at any time. Please, please, please leave at any time. Meanwhile, the administration did not wait for a reply from Livingston before it began its search for a replacement. While I haven't been able to find any primary documents outlining the thought process of the administration, 
As has been identified by historians, there are clear reasons to justify the man ultimately chosen for the post. John Armstrong Jr. of Carlisle, Pennsylvania, had served in the Continental Army under Hugh Mercer and Horatio Gates, but his service is marred in terms of American history as he was the anonymous author of a document that was at the heart of the Newburgh Conspiracy in 1783, where General Washington had stepped in to address discontent among the ranks and delivered his famous quote, Gentlemen, you will permit me to put on my spectacles, for I have grown not only gray, but almost blind in the service of my country. As his role in the conspiracy was not publicly known, Armstrong transitioned into a role in state government in Pennsylvania after leaving the Army. He then moved to New York in 1789 after marrying Alita Livingston, a sister of Chancellor Robert R. Livingston. Yes, that same Robert R. Livingston that he would be replacing as U.S. Minister to France, but more on that in a moment. Though he would be associated with the Livingstons, as noted by Armstrong's biographer C. Edward Skeen, Armstrong, quote, still retained a degree of independence. Thus, he was able to navigate through the familial alignments and rivalries that made up New York politics at the time to be chosen as a U.S. Senator in November 1800. Assuming his seat in one of the more turbulent congressional sessions of the early Republic, as discussed in episode 2.24, Armstrong found that, quote, he did not enjoy the rigors of the legislative process. He did not participate in the debates, nor did he offer any recorded motions or resolutions. He was content to cast his votes, usually according to the dictates of party. Of course, in the easy informal atmosphere of Washington, the evenings were filled with political discussion and there was ample opportunity for him to make his views known. It can be assumed, however, that the combination in Armstrong's personality of diffidence and arrogance did not endear him to his fellow senators. After one session in Congress, he used his wife's illness and, quote, his own rheumatic ailment as excuses to delay his return to Washington until finally Armstrong resigned from the Senate and was replaced by DeWitt Clinton, as mentioned in episode 3.19. In an odd turn, when Clinton resigned as senator in 1803 to take up the post of mayor of New York City, Governor George Clinton appointed Armstrong to serve out the remainder of DeWitt's term which was, of course, the same term to which Armstrong had initially been elected. Skeen notes that, quote, exactly why he chose to return to a position that he had so disliked is difficult to determine. He had obviously retained a keen interest in political matters, and in particular, like a number of prominent pro-Jefferson and pro-Clinton Democratic Republicans, Armstrong was focused on taking down Vice President Aaron Burr. He was still in the Senate when Jefferson wrote on May 26, 1804, asking him to replace his brother-in-law in Paris. Skeen has offered the best explanation that I've seen thus far in the choice of Armstrong. As with other historians, he of course notes the importance of Armstrong's connection with the prominent Livingston family of New York. However, he also explains that, quote, the decision was probably based more on their, i.e. Jefferson and Madison's, estimation of the man. Despite his lack of diplomatic experience, Armstrong's knowledge of world affairs was extensive, and he was noted as a scholar, which to men such as Jefferson and Madison was a valuable asset. Armstrong was also a skillful writer, an important qualification for a diplomatic post. Finally, he was sufficiently wealthy to afford the expense of the mission, he was cultivated, and he was experienced enough politically to represent American interests adequately at the French court. Indeed, Knowing that the pay was not great for the post, Jefferson, as a former U.S. minister to France himself, assured Armstrong, quote, that a man may live in any country on any scale he pleases, and that, 
Though it seemed like Livingston was living the high life at great expense in Paris, quote, this procures one some sunshine friends who like to eat of your good things, but has no effect on the men of real business, the only men of real use to you in a place where every man is estimated at what he really is. Armstrong accepted the post, but admitted in his reply to Jefferson his doubts, quote, in my own qualifications to discharge the highly important trust. The money, however, was not an issue for him as, quote, my family and myself have long since found out the secret of living within our income. As the new U.S. minister to France prepares to take up his post, let's leave him and return back to the subject of the presidential election. Starting on the Democratic-Republican side, there was an active push to organize their campaign efforts. At the Congressional Caucus of February 25th, discussed last in episode 3.21, a campaign committee was organized, with one congressman per state being appointed. They then worked to organize state and local committees in states that were not solidly Democratic-Republican. Throughout the year, Democratic-Republicans organized parades, celebrations, and dinners to boost support. For example, in Philadelphia, a parade and dinner were held on May 11, 1804, to celebrate the Louisiana Purchase. Naturally, newspapers also were seen as playing a key role in getting the message of the pro-Jefferson faction out there, and Samuel Harrison Smith of the National Intelligencer was at the heart of that network. His paper, as noted by historian Manning Dower, quote, provided a ready forum for a long series of articles defending the administration. Smith had access to the White House, and his articles were immediately copied in other Republican papers from Georgia to Maine. For the entirety of the year, supporters of Jefferson kept up a constant message of highlighting the successes of the administration, with the Louisiana Purchase being the most prominent, and of Jefferson's record of, quote, simplicity and frugality in government. Just as organized as Democratic-Republicans' efforts were, on the other side of the aisle, it can hardly be said that there was a Federalist campaign effort. Again, from Dower, quote, In some states, there was simply no Federalist campaign whatsoever. With the election of Jefferson, except in New England, Delaware, Maryland, and South Carolina, the Federalist Party disintegrated at the state level and lost much of its strength in Congress. At the same time, the admission of new states in the West still further discouraged the Federalists, since the party which stressed aristocratic leadership never had strength in the frontier territories. Likewise, Federalist newspapers were not nearly as adept at promoting a consistent campaign message as the Democratic-Republican papers. Though noting that there were more Federalist papers, Dower explains that, quote, the Federalists catered the content of their newspapers to shipping, to the professions, and to the established families, while the, quote, style of Democratic-Republican papers was lively, and they had, quote, news directed to the average person. Indeed, as noted in our opening quote, publicly at least, there wasn't much mention of there actually being a Federalist ticket for president and vice president. Though, as noted in episode 3.21, there had been the dinner in Washington on February 22, 1804, that had endorsed the candidacy of Charles Coatsworth Pinckney for president and Rufus King for vice president, it seems like the only public mention of it was in a few Federalist papers in March. King did take a trip to New England in the fall, where he participated in a number of public dinners thrown by Federalists. But it seems as if the subject of Alexander Hamilton's demise in July was a greater topic of conversation than the state of the Federalist Party or the campaign. Likewise, as noted by Pinckney biographer Marvin Zonizer, quote, As far as Pinckney was concerned, the great issue of 1904 was not whether he would be elected president, 
but whether dueling would be banished by law and a hostile public opinion. Though it is likely that Pinckney had been considering the subject for a while, Hamilton's death served as a call to action for the South Carolinian, and he used his public prominence to campaign in the summer and the fall for the passage of laws against dueling. Ultimately, this effort would prove unsuccessful. As Zonazar postulates, quote, perhaps he had waited too long to take his stand. Fiery young men could argue that General Pinckney had been a brave man in his day, but that he was no longer as sensitive about questions of honor or as likely to be challenged. Or perhaps dueling was by now too firmly rooted in custom and in the frontier temperament to be shaken by condemnations from old generals and well-meaning preachers. This lack of an active Federalist campaign for president, however, doesn't mean that Jefferson went unchallenged. Certainly, as they had for the better part of a decade, Federalist editors attacked Jefferson on numerous points. Dower describes how, quote, Federalist criticism of Jefferson started with the honest belief that none but Federalists were suitable to govern. In their view, all Republicans were demagogues who manipulated the press, raised false issues, and brought in foreigners to corrupt America. Beyond just the party disputes, though, Federalists attacked Jefferson personally. Quote, they considered Jefferson an infidel who traveled on Sunday. They even claimed he had not written the Declaration of Independence, but only wrote down what others told him. Moreover, he was considered a deadbeat who refused to pay his private debts. Jefferson had no judgment. His fiscal policy was notoriously unwise. His repeal of the Judiciary Act and the weakening of the Army and Navy showed his desire to dismantle the government. On and on they went, but there's one attack in particular that may explain why Federalist leaders weren't all that eager to publicly promote the candidacy of Charles Coatsworth Pinckney of South Carolina. Historian Kevin Gannon notes increased criticism of the practice of slavery amongst New England Federalists, including former Secretary of the Treasury Oliver Walcott Jr. and former Representative Fisher Ames. One constituent wrote Senator Timothy Pickering about slaveholding Democratic Republicans in disbelief that, quote, these same slaveholders are looked upon by the giddy-headed and ill-informed sovereign majority to be the guardians of the rights of man. An editorial in the Boston Repertory on April 24, 1804, attacked Jefferson personally as a slaveholder who rides in, quote, his triumphal car drawn by a million of enslaved Negroes over the necks of those who have not bent the knee to bell. And are we to submit to the guidance and tyranny of the South? Though Federalists were not a viable party nationally, it is clear in 1804 that they were having an impact on the development of sectional identities and divisions that would have consequential, long-term impacts. That will, of course, be discussed much more in future episodes. But for now, as we start to bring this episode to a close, let's finish up with the presidential election. Zonaser wrote that, quote, Pinckney had the dubious honor of being the least publicized candidate in the brief history of American presidential party politics. There's every probability that most Americans were completely unaware that he had been nominated by the Federalist Party. Some Federalist editors in New England even sought to confuse Democratic Republicans by printing that, quote, electors should use their discretion and vote for Democratic Republican vice presidential candidate George Clinton for president which caused some concerns of a repeat of 1800 in some Democratic-Republican circles. However, as the 12th Amendment had been ratified by the prerequisite number of states and gone into effect in September, by and large, the fear of yet another turbulent election had largely subsided. In the end, there was no contest. The Jefferson-Clinton ticket 
won 162 electoral votes to 14 for the Pinckney King ticket. Only Connecticut and Delaware had gone Federalist, though there had been two stray electoral votes from Maryland cast for Pinckney and King. Jefferson wrote of his electoral triumph to a friend in Europe in February 1805, and though he admitted that there was still some contention coming from the Federalists, he saw his re-election as evidence that, quote, the two parties which prevailed with so much violence when you were here are almost wholly melted into one. We'll have to wait to see whether Jefferson's optimistic prediction of national unity would come to fruition. But for now, it's time to wrap up this episode with a few words of thanks. Thanks so much again to Thashira for providing the intro quote for this episode. And be sure to check out Legendary Africa, available anywhere fine podcasts can be found. Special thanks also to the Itinerant Band for allowing us the use of clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty for the intro and outro music for this series. To find a link to Legendary Africa or to find out more about the Itinerant Band, check out the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. There, you can also find past episodes as well as tons of links to information about all of the presidents. You can also find the numerous ways that you can help to support this podcast. As the holiday season is coming up, you may want to check out the Hero Soap Company's new line of body wash, as well as their bar soaps, as a cleansing and refreshing gift for a friend or family member. If you use the promo code PRESIDENCIES at checkout, not only will you be helping the podcast, you'll also get 10% off of your purchase. You can find the link on the website or search for Hero Soap Company in your search engine of choice. You can also become a patron of the podcast for as little as $1 per month by going to patreon.com forward slash presidencies. As always, I can't thank our patrons enough for their continued support. If you'd like to connect with me on social media, I'm available on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast, all one word. For any questions or comments, you can either reach out through social media or send me an email at Presidencies Podcast, again, all one word, at gmail.com. Finally, I'd like to thank you for listening. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another. And take care, dear friends. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II. Each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.